10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from London, this is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning. You're listening to Sobia Stella Sunday. It's Sunday the 19th of December. Hope everyone is on Christmas holidays, but if not, we're here for you today and we have the best conversations coming your way. We're learning how to communicate with students about drugs and crime, looking for signs and supporting those who might be involved. We're also discussing ethics and different dilemmas educators face on a daily basis. It's another thrilling morning. Prepare for takeoff. Live from London, this is the Sunday Morning Breakfast Show with Sobia Iqbal on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live on the Podbean app or desktop player. Just head over to www.podbean.com slash lsw slash TT Radio or search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. We've got a great lineup today. We've got Warren King and we've got Martin Bloomfield coming up soon. We're going to come back to them after this transition. Um, I'm introducing Warren King, who's on the show. We've had some technical issues this morning, but I'm hoping he's there. Good morning, Warren. Can you hear me? Hey, I can hear you, Sobia. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, we had a bit of a dilemma this morning, but we're all fit now. How are you, Warren? Yes. Yeah, I'm great, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Warren, can you, for our listeners, uh, introduce yourself and share your story with our radio listeners, please? Yeah, sure. Okay, so uh, my name's Warren King. Um, I was released from uh, prison for drug-related offences uh, in May uh, 2019. Um, so now I'm a student uh, at the London School of Economics, and I also work with sort of young people at risk of exclusion or, or crime. Um, so that's just sort of an overview of me, really. And you've mentioned that you were in prison. Can you just give us a rough idea of uh, what kind of offences you were in for and how long you were in for as well, please? Yeah, so um, I got sentenced uh, in January 2019 uh, to sort of uh, to three years and four months. Um, that was for a possession of intent to supply class A um, and several counts, so that was like cocaine, MDMA, LSD, um, but also especially with intent to supply um, class B cannabis and ketamine, um, and also production of uh, cannabis as well. So quite a, a few things there, and um, I got arrested quite a lot of times as well, so um, I had a few outstanding cases, but I think they've all been dealt with now. Warren, can I just say, before you go any further, um, 
Thank you very much for being very, very honest because it's very brave of you. And I just want to say that I feel um, firstly humbled that you agreed to come onto the show. Uh, and secondly, to do something like this is a very brave thing to do. So, uh, yeah, lots of respect to you for that. Can you, can you explain to everyone how you got into that lifestyle? Did you ever try to leave it? And if you did, was it easy to get out of that lifestyle? <laughs> okay, um, so I'll go from the start. Um, so <sighs> I didn't even know what weed was until like year nine. Um, and I used to be really sort of against drugs as well um, growing up. But I moved school and um, I didn't have any friends. Mm. And one day, um, sort of a guy um, sort of befriended me. Um, and Friday come, he was like, Warren, do you want to come back to mine? I was like, yeah, great, let's go. And um, we're sort of walking back to his, we go past the shop, and he's like, well, do you want to smoke some cigarettes with me? And um, I did so. <laughs> we smoked some cigarettes. Um, and the following week, uh, I went back to his again, And um, but the ante was kind of up to this time. So, um, you know, we got the cigarettes, and he was like, Warren, do you want to get some weed as well to smoke these cigarettes with? And um, I quite quickly said yes, and... Um, got involved with it um, and I started um, smoking. You know, the person that got me involved in it actually warned me not to smoke it alone, um, but I started doing that and started smoking almost every day um, and kind of become disengaged with education. Um, and you asked me, did I ever try to leave? Um, yeah. So when I uh, really got like involved into the dealing side of um, drugs, I quite quickly got um, attacked with uh, ammonia. So I was at my front door and I had a knock and someone basically asked for some drugs. Um, he, I think he was trying to um, rob me, basically. Uh, he, uh, that sounds no awful. Did you, yeah. yeah, did he throw I it said, at your face? No to him. Yeah, so he had a Lucas A bottle. Um, I said no to him. I said, oh, I'm not selling drugs. I didn't know the guy. And as I went to close the door, he put his foot in it and um, pulled out this Lucozade bottle and just squirted whatever was inside into my face. And um, it was a strong, yeah. So it's, it wasn't acid, but it was um, the other side of the scale. It was a, it was uh, alkaline, mm. uh, which was uh, horrendously painful um, and sort of left me blind for three months. Anyway, like when that happened, yeah, that hurt. That was no, that's what. That's yeah, awful. That's really painful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was pretty horrendous. And and you you'd think actually most you know if it was you for example, so you, you would think you'd get out of it, right? You think that was enough. Um, but I remember hugging my sort of my girlfriend at the time after she had like called the the police, and you know the the whole road was lit up with red and blue, right? So we had fire engines there, we had like ambulances, police cars. The whole road was like you know there must have been about 13 different different vehicles so it was quite and I remember hugging her and um, before I left uh, to go into the ambulance and saying like oh, I'm done with this and I don't want to be doing this um, and, and, and I was sorry as well and um, but I didn't really have any other options at the time not that I could I didn't really feel like I had any other options I couldn't I needed to support myself like pay rent pay food you know, my girlfriend was living with me. I didn't um, really see any viable way out. Um, 
and I was kind of done with education. I was com- at this sort of stage. This is when I was nineteen. I was like completely disenfranchised with education. I'd failed every exam I'd ever taken, and was told continuously growing up that I'd never succeed at, at life as an adult. So I kind of had given up on myself who, at that point. Who told you that, Warren? Well, did oh, teachers I, tell you that? Or did parents? <laughs> who yeah, was their friends? Yeah, yeah. I had really poor relationships with my teachers, and and I go into schools now, and and I see like, I see how wonderful a lot of the teachers are now. And I'm like thinking to them, I, I went in a school on Tuesday and I said to the um, the lady that invited me in, I was thinking, I wish you were my teacher because like, you're great. <laughs> but no, I had to really sort of fractious relationships with my teachers growing up. So I remember when I was really young and this was quite a definitive uh, point for me as well when it comes to my sort of academic confidence. And all I had done was like cut out a picture of an elephant. Right? I was only like year two or three. And um, and I went up to the teacher to show her. And she said, I, I don't know what happened, but like I'd done something that she didn't like or I don't know, I can't remember. But she said, yeah, she kind of turned around and snarled at me and said, like, you're never going to survive life as an adult. And I was like, oh, OK, I was just I was just trying to show you my elephant. But fair enough. Um, she <laughs> yeah, said that I when just... you were in year one and two. <laughs> Yeah, something like that, year two, year three or something like that. But she, um, she, she, like, she used to walk past my mum's house every day to get to the school, right? So, yeah. and my mum knew her, mm. and um, my mum wasn't friends with her. <laughs> I remember they would argue, and I feel like that, that relationship got sort of reflected onto me. Yeah. Um, so, and obviously when, you know, teachers talk as well, so once... I've already, like, I felt like I was kind of labelled in at that sort of point uh, in school and wherever I went, it would be, I'd get in the same attitude from teachers, right? And it wasn't, that was reflected in students as well. So it wasn't just my teachers. I had really poor relationships with people around me. So I had no social so, confidence. I had no academic confidence. So Warren, can I ask you, in terms of um, behaviour, did you present any behavioural issues um, towards teachers or anything that um, made uh, them act towards you that in that way? Not that I remember. Um, yeah, no, I was quite. I was never violent or naughty like that. Because um, you were I quite a like, quiet student, weren't you? Yeah, I might have like, I might have been sort of chatting to my mate that's sitting next to me for most of the lesson, but that's it. I wasn't sort of jumping up and shouting and things like that that wasn't me at all that was I was very much the quiet sort of maybe looked at as like the geeky kid that would sit at the back uh, but not actually get work done Um, and and so so did no teacher come up to you during your phase of education whether it's primary secondary or if you went to college did no educator sit down and talk to you at any point to ask you, uh, for example, why you were quiet or what your issues were or if they could support you with anything? Was there any engagement with you? No. <laughs> no, 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 nothing like that ever, um, which is actually a bit of a shock now that I've I've been doing work, like, in schools and that is actually it is a bit of a shock. Then. But, no, um, I think the, the, the most positive time was um, – and this isn't – too long after that first incident that I told you um, and as an eff- effect of it basically I was in class um, we was reading books and I couldn't understand who said what in this book basically right and I didn't want to ask a teacher because I just felt stupid um, and I just yeah I just didn't want to ask a teacher and I got really upset and I remember at the end of the lesson everyone had left and I'm still sitting there really stressed and frustrated because I want to learn and I want to do good um, but crying, right? 
because I didn't understand who said what in this in this book. And the teacher comes up to me really sweetly and, and asks me and explains it. And that, that was probably the most positive experience that I've got. It's like that I remember at school. And there wow. was another time, like yeah. So and. Um, that's quite sad, Warren. I mean, I because I'm sitting here <laughs> yeah. thinking that we teach. I mean, I've been in the profession 17 years, hundreds and thousands of kids I've taught. And to think that I might have missed one of them and not have spoken to them and to have realised that somebody was going through uh, such difficulty, to me, that doesn't seem normal. Uh, and obviously, school is a lot different now to when you were growing up. Mm. Can you just explain to us... Um, Obviously, so you said that your relationships um, weren't great with everybody around you. They were fractured. You eventually did go to prison um, because you did get caught. What was life like for you when you were in prison? Um, and it's up to you how much detail you go into, <laughs> but it would be well, nice to know what it was like for you and what it was actually like in there. How much time have we got, Sobia? <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it to your judgment. I could, I could keep going for ages. No, I, um, so no, prison was hard, you know, prison was hard. But um, I mean, a lot of people ask, did I cry on the first night? And actually, um, it probably took me about three months to stop crying, funny, <laughs> funny enough. Um, but the first night, I really didn't have much sleep because I was anxious and, and that. But I kind of do remember this quite um, unexpected feeling. And it was that nobody could come through my door the next day, right? So where I was uh, drug dealing before, I kept being arrested, obviously, um, but also kept getting targeted for attacks, like I discussed um, a minute ago. You know, and these attacks weren't, these attacks were vicious, right? I, you know, people were putting rope around me. I've been hitting the head with hammer. I've had guns in my face. I've had people try and put machetes through me. I've had people press a knife into my stomach and um, all of that. So, and, and kind of every day was drunk together by this sort of anxiety of waiting for the next sort of attack or arrest to happen. And um, so I got into down. I finally sort of had this feeling of, of relief because I knew that nobody's going to come for me, essentially. Um, you know, the door's locked, no one's getting through it. Um, so that was actually something that I didn't expect to feel um, and only realised it kind of the next day. Um, Warren, how yeah, old were so, you when this was happening? Well, when when I got sentenced or when yeah. I was... Um, well, both, when the, when all the yeah. attacks were happening and also when you got sentenced. Oh, <clears throat> I mean, I, I started quite young, so I started at 19. I got sentenced at... When I was uh, 26, I think, I turned 27 in prison, I think, or 28, I can't remember. Um, it's not and so then obviously you... I, I'm just going to summarise for our listeners who've just joined us. You've had a, a life where you've not had great relationships uh, because you've not been surrounded by them. Uh, your relationship with your teachers weren't great. Friendships weren't great. Um, and obviously uh, you ended up in prison um, and you were obviously struggling because, come on, you're, you're mm. a child. You've got no relationships. Nobody's uh, helping you out. In effect, you were kind of drowning in that. Um, and then you got sent and it was kind of a relief because you said that there was no one there to attack you. Do yeah. you, when you look back now, do you have any regrets? I mean, how do you feel about that part of your life and the part that you're in now? So the, the stage of your life you're in now is completely different. Do you want to just explain that to us? 
Yeah, so, I mean, of course, for like, you know, forever, I just hated myself for what I was kind of doing, where I was, and the fact that I had no opportunities because I hadn't studied well in school, and I regretted all of that, um, like, really deeply, so much, you know, I was really sort of in a in a, in a really dark place, um, and, and I needed a lot of support. Um, but actually, now, sort of less regret, because I'm kind of, you know, when I go into schools and work with young people at risk, those experiences are now sort of um being like i can use them in a positive way it means they kind of they've not happened in vain um so now less regret but sort of back then yeah i just hate i really hated myself for it and even before um i went to jail i was you know suffering um also from sort of an undiagnosed and untreated ptsd from all the attacks and the rest but um my own issues that actually started uh, you know the, the reason why i needed to do start drugs in the first place was never was never dealt with um not until i went to prison and actually got support so warren um you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to but how did you bring yourself out of that self-hatred oh yeah it took a lot of um support uh mainly uh really from help from my sister who i believe is listening so hello sarah morning um, sarah <laughs> she um yeah i don't know i remember I mean, I don't know my biological dad, right? So let's start with it. I don't know him. Um, and I kind of grew up with this feeling of sort of, I don't know, abandonment and wondering, like, why doesn't he want to see me, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I've got two kids now. Yeah. Yes. Uh, when I went to jail, they were both very young. So my daughter was four. My son was only like five months old. Um, and I never wanted them have that, to have that same feeling. Yet kind of through my actions and the poor choices that I made I've kind of done the same thing and I was sitting in prison like you know on the bus to the prison thinking like oh, I've let I've let them down I've done I've done what my old man done and really depressed and I just wanted to to end it I thought you know they're better off without me all of this and um and I called my sister like you know told told her I was quite sort of open with my sister and we've always had a good relationship and um fortunately and um she kind of just told me, like, you know, you know, you might be in prison, but you're not doesn't necessarily make you the bad person and you still got opportunities. Like you're you're not stupid, you've got potential. And I kinda I think I believed her more than anything, and that's kind of what set me on my way. And she gave me um things to think about, things that I might be interested in. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to do something sort of productive and I kind of went uh, through the education route. And so that's a you know that's a lovely story that you there was at least one person there who was your your sister and she is messaging in right now and saying that having belief Uh in someone is really important and I'd have to agree with that Sarah because having listening to your brother's story it is actually quite um disheartening to find that there was no adult who actually you know supported you that that's quite sad really and to have someone like your sister championing you and telling you that there are opportunities afterwards despite the fact that you have managed to deal with the consequences you know it's a big thing so yeah um uh, Tom's just messaged in which is one of our questions as well what was it like in prison and you know because obviously we see lots of tv shows and we see we see lots of people um talking about it uh, on the radio sometimes but we don't actually know so can you give us an in-depth description of what it was like 
Yeah, so, um, I mean, who's watched uh, the new three-part drama on uh, Time, um, written by, um, I can't remember who it was written by, but, um, yeah, that was um, really realistic. So if you've ever seen that, I'd say go for that. That's a good one. Um, I, in, in fact, even down to uh, the boiling water uh, part, someone has uh, boiling water thrown over them in the mm. thing, and, and actually, that that happened to me too in prison. Um, I was getting uh, problems um, right at the start of my sentence, and um, and was that the and, other the other um, people that were in there, the other offenders? Yes. So that was literally it started out as friends um, and joking around, and but I wasn't in a good place, sort of ment- like my mental health. I was really depressed, and um, they kind of took that vulnerability and just used it as a means to kind of, I don't know like nurse their ego to make themselves feel better about themselves by bullying someone else essentially and that got progressively worse and um me trying to stick up for myself only saw um bigger issues and eventually it got to the point where um i went to um go for a shower and he's there waiting to confront me with uh, a kettle of boiling water ready to throw at me, uh, which he did so, um, which stung a little bit. But I was all right. I defended myself and um, that was dealt with. And actually after that, I had no more problems. But um, And did like, um, were the security guards good at like helping and supporting? Or is it, <laughs> oh, do they bless, just stay? No. <laughs> bless, 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 bless one of them. Bless one of them. You know what? He's such a nice guy. He, he wasn't fit to be a, 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 a prison officer, but he was really nice. And you know what? Because I used to self harm, and um, he he once took me sort of into into a room just to have a chat. He was like, you know, Warren, like I I get this is really hard. Like you know, I I'm there for you to talk to if you ever need, right? And I was like, oh, you're such a nice guy. Well, he was the one unlocking the doors at that particular moment when when we had this. Um, um when we had this uh, fight sort of and um he he ran away <laughs> he, he, ran, he ran off he ran but off you know what warren i think <laughs> what your sister said there earlier having that person champion you or believe in you or just support yeah. you just a tiny bit helps um yeah it really does see well i'll tell you another story a quick story uh, before we move on if you don't mind um i was in sort of year nine or ten and i had this essay this uh, english essay to do and i sat with her at her house and she helped me do it and i was really proud because you know it was the first time really that i had i had completed a piece of work right and i felt like it was almost like my own i mean she helped structure it and scaffold but you know i had done the work and i took it in and my my teacher didn't believe that i'd done it because his expectations were so low he thought that i'd paid someone to do it and oh, tore it up in front of the class tore it up in front of the class right and then for it in the bin i was like well i'm not bothering again at all because that's how i'm going to be treated and actually i saw that happen i saw someone's uh, tweet as well uh, that happened to their daughter i think so i was like okay it still happens then that's really yeah. really to be quite honest warren you've got me um <laughs> you've got me in tears you know, listening to your story you know, you know what you know what's you know what's funny um my best friend at the time the guy that got me involved in weed funny enough he had also had problems with his teacher and he's he's a really intelligent guy he's like into computers now he makes a lot of money all of that um his mum wrote a complaint um 
to the head of department about this teacher. Turns out our teacher was the head of department. <laughs> so it was just, it, it just got worse. <laughs> but you know what, Warren, yeah. you, you did turn your life around and you did come out of that. So can you tell us a bit about afterwards? Because you're not at that stage anymore. Can you tell no. us, was it easy to secure a job uh, and a course because you did go on to do better things? Um, did you have any difficulties no. or barriers? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's the simple, uh, quick answer. Yes, lots of barriers. And actually, unfortunately, the, the biggest part of the barriers were the services that were meant to provide support and help, right? Yeah. So probation. And, and although actually my probation worker now is, you know, amazing, actually, she's really, really good. Um, um, and until I've met her, really, my opinion of probation was really low. But um, yeah, I had a few barriers to work. And in fact, I had gained personal quality personal training qualifications whilst in prison okay and my plan was to um come out of jail um educate myself uh, go to college and and university and use my personal training qualifications as a as, as a means to get by it right and also i loved it as well so personal training as well as ed- education and sort of fitness um was really transformative for me in prison really helped my mental health you know i, I went into prison really skinny addicted to drugs i hated how i looked and, and suddenly um i'm looking in the mirror liking how i look yeah and that, and that was for training and that was because of training and not just because of the physical benefits but the mental health ones as well so i, I kind of fell in love with personal training and um but i had an electronic sorry I'd, i had an electronic tag on for the first four and a half months of being back home right which meant i had to be in by seven um but to get me sort of through life i had to i set up a small gym in my sister's uh, garden um and plan to get clients through that and i had some interest uh, but often people would want to train either really early in the morning before work or in the evening after work right um but when you go on tag it only they only set it to within your household not your garden so it's just like a weird rule that you've got you can't go in the garden and they refused to extend my tag parameter to the garden which meant um i could only commit to a few clients during the day um which was uh, frustrating um because you know now it was probation service that hindered my progression you know i could if i mean if i wanted to i could sell drugs during the day right and be home at seven but what i couldn't do was find all of my clients um like a spot during the day because they might be working so really all it did was stop me from getting legitimate work which was you know hugely frustrating uh, but not only that i had applied to study uh, sociology uh, at college right and of course i had disclosed uh, to the college that i'd spent time in custody custody for drugs and um and fair enough the college wanted to do a um sort of a safeguarding check right they wanted a reference from probation uh, as part of their risk assessment well, despite me giving uh, probation my permission to share my details with the college, they simply didn't get around to doing it, um, which meant the college couldn't accept me on that basis. Right? It took some work for me to get in. I basically had to you know, go through a series of interviews, and it was only because of my own determination that I did uh, kind of get that opportunity. Right. If I hadn't have pushed them and bugged them like constantly, um, they would have just forgotten about me. Right. And, 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 you know, some people would have given up as well. And I, and I think if I weren't sort of having the support for my sister, I probably would have given up. 
Yeah, um, and that's quite just, that's quite horrifying that even after you've tried to change your uh, your own life, that the lack of support was there from uh, the prison service and all the all yeah. the public sector bodies well, that were supposed to be helping you. I mean, that's that's reflected of the attitude. So before I got released, maybe a week before I got released, my probation worker come to my prison and just did like um, this check, this little interview that they're meant to do with everyone. And she asked me what I was planning. So I told her, you know, education, so sociology, and I'm going to do personal training when I come home. And this this officer kind of overheard, right? And when I left the uh, little um, the office, the officer come up to me say, "What did you say you want to do? Like when you get when you get home?" And I was like, "Oh well, I've got a personal training qualification inside, and I, I want to do that." And she looked at me up and down and was like, "I wouldn't hire you as a PT." And I'm like, "That was uncalled for. Like, why? Why? What? What is the need for that attitude? Like, or to just say that to me? Like, you know, you're meant to be." And I think sort of a positive, like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I did like that. Yeah. And I think what it is, Warren, it's like what you were saying earlier that, you know, people end up having unconscious bias. It's called that where they they have low estimation or they they have perceptions of people or, you know, it's a it's a false judgment. Can you? Yeah. Uh, you know, and but you did get over that, and you did get onto your course yeah. eventually, because you're now yeah. at LSE, aren't you? Which is a fantastic university. <laughs> yeah, somehow managed to um, worm my way in there. Well, no, you did well, not you know worm what? your way in, no. Warren. Can I just say this for the <laughs> listeners out there? Okay, um, LSE is one of the best universities, which is a Russell Group University, London School of Economics. That's where you're at, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. a really high quality university. <laughs> yeah. you, it got, it's it not easy to get into. Yeah. No, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I yeah, but no, I work hard, and that's what happens when you work hard. You do like you work hard, do well, and and you get good things. I guess. Um, so I, can I, you? Like, I've had sorry I've just had Sarah messaging sorry to interrupt you Warren um okay Sarah messaged in before as well and one of the things that she said was one of her biggest struggles with working with children who are involved in crime is how to manage those who are so entrenched in the culture of crime which I agree with and how can teachers change that story and we'll come on to that in a minute and the other thing that she said is that one of her pieces of work with youth offending team is how we should be talking about release on day one not talking about plans a week before the release I think we have to give people hope at the beginning of sentence not at the end and I would agree with that as well so Warren my question to you is that when you when you know um how do you feel do you feel that if your teachers had taken an interest or notice in you would that may have changed the you know the shape of your story so yeah I mean Listen, me and my sister have had very similar upbringing, right? We both had sort of difficult time at home. Um, she's nine years older than me. She actually knew my biological dad, whereas I don't. I don't remember him. Um, and I, I do wonder, like, how she's quite successful, you know? She's done well. She's a teacher as well. And um, and I do wonder, like, you know, how come we went through such different paths? And I think it was our relationship with education, um, which was the sort of defining uh, difference. Mm-hmm. So I had a really poor relationship with education. But, you know, for her, she, um, I believe, had a much better sort of time of it, had a, a, a kind of like an, a, a small sort of tight-knit group of friends, so really positive. Um, whereas for me, I was completely alienated from uh, education um, and, you know, uh, in the ways that I told you earlier, and you know they yeah. were isolated incidents. It was mm. these are typical of, of, of like a recurring 
the theme of the recurring experience of school. Right? Yeah. Um, so I and, think that must be the biggest difference. Yeah, and I so listening to your story now, and obviously listening, uh, reading what Sarah's written in as well, it is a huge thing for teachers to be where you know to be concerned about because we are not doing our duty if we are not looking out after our students in terms of safeguarding. And I think, I think one of the things that shocked me is the fact that you said that no adult actually sat you down and asked you anything about anything, which is you Even, know a shock yeah. in itself. In itself because you know we've all got we all had form tutors we all had adults you know there are plenty of adults in the school now Warren we know that young people are vulnerable and easily exploited um and like you told us your story it was really easy for people to approach you and get you involved in that culture as educators it's really hard for us to know where to begin because we're not always trained appropriately because we have to do PSHE lessons and we have to take part in lots of different uh, things that we do across the school but usually we get visitors like you who is a speaker for schools now who come in to tell us but how do we kind of spot the signs that a student might be involved in drugs or crime because you were a quiet student so teachers didn't know mm. you were involved in that so how does that work like what can we see what kind of signs do you think we might be able to pick up I mean if you were uh, if I were to be perfectly honest actually at one point in my educational career in my uh, I was done a fine art course after school, right? Um, actually, I, I sat in class with the teacher there rolling up joints to go out and smoke. So the teacher's pretty was pretty new, like he even sort of acknowledged it and said, like, "Oh, you're bringing in some more basil again, Warren." I see, and I was just like, "Oh yeah," and now I'm shocked. Like I was sitting there in class rolling a joint, and the teacher knew full well, and he didn't, and he wasn't bothered at all. But you know, and then I think, okay, well, actually. Is that necessarily, okay, of course it's bad. It was a really small class, right? And at this point, we was sort of 19 years old. I think actually maybe it was better for him not to sort of kick me out and AMA that way, but I don't know. I'm not sure about that. But, you know, I'd love to give you a sort of one-size-fits-all answer, really, but I don't think that would work. Um, you know, everyone is different, of course. Um, although you might be able to notice some patterns when you speak to uh, people, like, uh, that have been involved. So I um, have... I've done like several interviews with um, old associates of mine and asking them sort of how they got involved. And a common theme was, first of all, age, but um, relationships with their peers and their family, anger issues. Um, for the most part, people aren't trying to go out and be devious, or, you know, taking drugs because they're trying to make themselves feel better or they're trying to make themselves have a better night, right? Um I mean, these are big things to look out for, but it's hard when you haven't got a relationship with the student. You don't know what's going through them because you don't talk to them. And that was what it was like with me. So I, after my um, stepdad died, when I was, um, just before I was 18, I went in and told my teacher, actually. And he just went, okay, like, didn't, wasn't bothered. And obviously, as a result of that, there was no support whatsoever. There was no wider support from the college at all. Um, and I was just kind of left to my own um sort of to my own devices right so i think and you did say earlier warren is the for our thing. listeners who yeah feeling supported i agree um you did say earlier that um one of the issues that you had was low self-esteem 
Yeah. And I think I think that you said uh, you said earlier that low self esteem played a big part in why you got into you yeah. know the things that you did. That's right. Well, I kind of use it as a platform to make friends, right? So you know, I'm smoking weed with my mate. That's you know, just I've gone to the new school. My new friend there has offered me a joint. I'm thinking, yeah, great. You know, I'm making friends now. So we're going out. We're going to South Bank and and partying and using kind of drugs as a platform to make more friends and engage people or like this community. Um, yeah, so self-esteem was one of the biggest things for me, self-esteem and confidence and things like that. Having a poor view of myself, actually, like I said earlier, having that need to feel better. And I think if you're able to sort of nurture like a kind of nice relationship with young people, then obviously they're going to be able to feel like they can talk to you. And actually, quite often, when it comes to drugs, young people, they're just going to feel like they're being going to get in trouble. So if they feel like they're going to get in trouble, if they open up to you, they're not going to open up to you, are they? They're going to they're going to recluse and um and actually what happens then is the drug the thing that they use to make themselves feel better becomes uh the addiction becomes even more intensified because now that's the only thing that they can turn to yeah and um what you've just said is really important the fact that um you know you need to be open-minded and when a child does come to you to discuss things they might not say it to you directly but you do need to be listening and you know actively listening to what young people are saying to you um it's really easy to label young people and gang leaders to be a specific type isn't it but i've worked in Mm -hmm. um slightly uh good high quality schools where um, we do have um, a different kind uh, of student. Um, But it's also a problem there. So there isn't really a type, is it? Because I also remember friends from even, you know, friends who came from secure backgrounds where you know they they did have a good family lifestyle and things like that and they went into high pressured careers like finance uh stockbroking and things like that and even then there's a culture of using drugs so is there a type there isn't is there no i mean if you go into a prison like you look at the people around you and they look like people that you'd walk past in the street because they're people. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So nobody looks like anything, um, like a criminal, because there is no look to what a criminal looks like, is there? Um, I mean, for the most part, just we're human, you know, and making mistakes makes us human. And um, and these people have just made, obviously, worse mistakes than others or got caught for them. And obviously, some mistakes are easier to uh, forgive than others. But um, yeah, it comes down to sort of how do you how do you work with it? How do you sort of how do you um, how do you go about making sure actually that when people get involved in it, there's they don't feel like they're getting in trouble at that young age because otherwise they're gonna they're gonna hide from it and that career develops. So, Warren, were you aware of the consequences and how should we as educators communicate about these topics with students? We've said open-mindedness, but what else can we do as adults to support these young people who have got themselves involved in things like this, whether they're at the beginning stage, whether they're really deeply entrenched in it, what can we do to support them? Well, let me just think of uh, a maybe a success story. Um, so... One of my first talks, I think my second one, I went to a people referral unit and, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm talking to these kids, there's about 20 of them, 
and um, one of them kicks off, right? I, I touched the nerve, and um, he kicked off, he's, he's swearing, he punches the wall, and he storms off. And the teacher goes after him, and, you know, this kid is... I mean, let's say he's having issues regulating his emotions, right? So as we all do, um, you know, and um, he throws something. And I don't, I'm not here to say that, you know, you should, that's okay and that you should just take that. But his teacher in that circumstances did, yeah, she didn't punish him for it. She just said, like, you're clearly having an issue. Sit down and talk. And she she listened to him. And, um as a result, he was able to open up about his involvement in, in, in drugs and uh, county lines and they had threats to life and things like that. And, um, yeah, she was able to appropriately safeguard because he was no longer in trouble, right? He was now getting help that he needed. And he's just, um, and he, I think as a result of that, he actually uh, done his GCSEs and got involved back into education. And I think he's doing uh, A-levels now, I think, um, I hope. And you've just mentioned county lines, Warren. What type of people do they target? And can you tell if a student, we've already answered this question, what type of people do they target? Well, okay, so it's vulnerable people and it's not necessarily students, right? It's anyone that they can get their hands on. And it's not just county lines, it's drug dealing as a whole, right? So county lines is just one small aspect of drug dealing that I really think has been sort of overemphasized recently, you know, because it is just drug dealing. It's just going from A to B, except B is in a different place, right? So, um, and listen, I was, you know, I was doing it for years. So I... Um, have kind of an idea of you know the differences and they're not huge and they're certainly not worth emphasizing as completely different they're very much the same thing in a different form um so really you got to think about okay so what makes people get involved in drug dealing whether that be county lines or or local dealing right so um usually it's people that have are poor obviously um that are struggling financially but the thing is that you're more likely to be groomed with a smile than a knife right you know the chances are Someone's going to come up to you and make it seem glamorous. Chances are you're already going to be a user and you might owe money. So these are sort of people that are going to be targeted and they're not going to be targeted like sohenously. They're going to be targeted like subversively almost. You know, you'll get in a car and do a drug deal or, or get your drugs and a person's going to be sitting there with a couple of thousand pounds in his lap just to make sure that you see it and that you know he's doing well. He'll, they'll be driving, you know, nice cars. They'll have, you know, girls in a car, things like that. They'll they'll try and make it seem like glamorous. And that's how they get people doing it. They kind of plant the seed, if you know what I mean, and let them make it, let it be their decision. Yeah. I think that's, that's probably... And that is a form of grooming. You're right. It is a form yeah, of grooming. Yeah, They're essentially selling a lifestyle and showing you that this is what it can be like, uh, which exactly. we all know that that does happen. Now, Warren, yeah, there yeah. was um, there was an article in the test, um, and it was recently on the 6th of December, and they were just saying how um, uh, school leaders are now spearheading a scheme to prevent pupils from becoming involved in crime and becoming permanently excluded. So what the DfE has done is that they They've announced that um, in crime hotspots across the country, uh, people who are involved in county lines gangs are going to be offered targeted support to boost pupils' attendance and prevent exclusions. And they've invested £30 million of funding as a part of a rollout of 10 safe uh, safe stands for support, attend, fulfil, exceed 
task forces and it'll be led by local school leaders to prevent pupils from being involved in criminal activity um, and 21 schools will be benefiting from alternative provision specialist task forces to help them as well um, so there'll be mental health professionals family workers speech and language therapists helping as well do you agree that this amount of money should be spent on this because you were discussing this earlier with me what are your thoughts on this well i mean certainly 30 million pounds a lot of money um but actually say if 50 percent of these kids went on to commit crimes actually the damages could be a lot more and and not just that but actually you know if you think about their lives well money is not a doesn't really matter when it comes to saving lives so much does it um you know at least it shouldn't be an object and um so i mean that sounds something like really good and positive to me i mean obviously we've got to be aware of sort of labeling and or mislabeling especially um but yeah i mean you know there can't be enough sort of support that sounds like a good motive and what you were saying earlier you said that you and your sister both grew up with the same family and had the same experiences and for you education was the defining factor because you didn't have good relationships yeah. and one of the yeah. things that this report does say that you know keeping young people engaged with the education is really really important uh, because mm -hmm. it means that they keep they're kept on the right track and the other thing that you you know when I was researching you Warren which I mentioned to you earlier was that the other thing that you said that was good for you was keeping engaged in sports and activities like yes. that yes 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 um yeah like i said earlier actually sport was really transformative for me as well as education sort of both of them combined was hugely effective in my um my own sort of my like personal sort of transformation of you know someone that didn't believe in themselves to someone that's actually thinking actually I've, i can I, I've, I can have a career here and a nice life you know and especially that relationship with my kids um who i see every weekend by the way and um yeah so yeah so do you think these talks that you're doing in schools and other speakers because there's loads of people who are doing these and who come into schools because we have them at our school as well do mm. you think they raise enough awareness and have you had students confide in you when you give these talks yeah, uh, yeah. E even sort of last week, I had a girl sort of tell me what's sort of going on in her life and asking for advice. So yes, I do get people um, come and talk to me, um, and some of these people are really going for it. Um, unfortunately, sort of after this conversation, I raised sort of a concern with the, um, the, the teacher, and she's already been sort of quite well supported, um, which was really nice to hear. I can, I could see that sort of in my own schooling experiences it would be quite natural f for her to like be ignored do you know what i mean so um it's quite nice to see that people yeah. are being supported better these days and, it's a, it's and obviously you've had a you have lived experience and you have a lot of it as well what made you take part in giving talks in schools well um yeah I really like to use my experiences in a nice way, in a positive way. It kind of, like I said earlier, it makes it so it's not in vain. And it started out with, I was, um, so I lived with my sister for a year after coming out of jail while I was getting myself back on my feet. And we were listening to a, a like a webinar on um, how people sort of get involved in drugs and crime. And it had 
quite clearly come from someone without really any lived experience, right? And he was kind of just um, repeating all these overemphasized sort of uh, rhetorics, like you know, black people, black gangs going into chicken shops and you know, forcing young kids to sell drugs. And I was like, that that's that's never happened. I've never seen that happen. <laughs> like so, and so I wanted to put my own two cents in it. And just tell people how I got involved, and I did some interviews on, you know, with some of my old associates and how they got involved, you know, boys and uh, women, and um, so it wasn't just sort of just you know, young like guys, right? So it's not just it's it's, it's it can be anyone, like you said earlier, and um, sorry, I, I uh, lost my flow there. That's I, okay, um, Warren. Yeah, um, I think. I think it's um, helpful. I've, it's nice to know that young people have actually come up to me and confided to me. And like I said, from one of the first talks, one person, although having sort of a negative reaction, actually, there was a big change uh, as a result of it. So hopefully it's helping. Yeah. And just to just to mention to our listeners that... Warren explained his story and one of the things that he made very clear was that education was a defining point for him. He wasn't getting the support he needed. As educators, it is really, really important for us to be actively listening to our students and spotting the signs when we see it. I have worked in schools where I have had the same experience where members of staff have not taken safeguarding seriously and they have ignored certain signs uh, and they've dismissed it. And that is possibly the worst thing you can you can do to a young person so if you are uh, in an environment where you are um, you know in charge of safeguarding then please do make sure that all your teachers even new teachers are trained up properly to look for signs uh, for drugs and criminal activity as well Warren just to finish off can you just give us some information about what kind of things you do through your talks what kind of information do you give to schools and students and what is it that you actually do yeah, so I mean, really, the whole focus is is kind of championing educa- championing education and and speaking about how that um, got me out of that life, right? And um, but also that comes at the end of the talk, really. Um, so I start with my experience of education. Um, I, I play them recordings of sort of how these people got involved and try and get them to have a discussion around that. Um, I talk to them about the attacks and being arrested. So basically, I, I, I show them all the bad sides, actually, that the drug dealers, for example, won't show them, you know, because they're all about glamorizing it. Actually, I come there and show yeah. them the realities rather yeah. than um, the glamour side. And um, and that includes, you know, the, the, uh, one of, I use a picture of me about nine weeks after I got done with ammonia, uh, where I was just opening my eyes again. You can see my eyes are still red, so it's a pretty oh, graphic image. Yeah. It's quite graphic, but it's not too bad. It's not too bad, but because, you know, it was, it was near, near enough three months after the the attack, so not too bad, but still um, enough uh, to just have that impact to, to say, you know, these things really do happen. Um, and usually, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there boring, boring them for about an hour sometimes with my life story, but actually they're usually quite engaged um, and listening so yeah I talk to them about the I give them a lot of uh, anecdotal stories as well um, I talk to them about prison uh, how it looks show them pictures um, and um, and I think and they, I think how education 
Yeah, the fact that you said that children come up to you and they have actually confided in you shows that there are children who are listening and they are taking it on board. And I do think that as a profession, we do underestimate our young people sometimes. And I'm really glad that you've made it clear that when you were in school, that people didn't take you seriously and things like actions of what teachers did, like rip up your work, you know, really did Mm. affect you because it made you even more sensitive than what you were. Warren... Thank you so much for your honesty, your bravery and for your insights today because you've given us a a real good understanding of what it was like on the other side. Um, Any last thoughts before you go? Yeah, I mean, listen, when I was young, like I wasn't hurt anyone or doing anything sort of crazy when it comes to selling drugs. So I wasn't, it wasn't out of, I want to be an, an evil drug dealer. It was out of, I, I need to get by it and I've got no other option. And I think remembering that goes a long way to um, stop sort of alienating uh, each other because actually that's that alienation, that, that disconnect from your peers or the, the authoritative sort of person in a given scenario, like the teacher, actually stops them from getting help, you know, and asking for support. So I think the most important thing is actually developing positive relationships with your young people. Actually, the best teachers that I've had are not necessarily teachers that have you know, know every every little last thing about the subject, but are willing to answer questions in a nice fashion and just be nice. And I think that allows people to develop positive relationships in where that can get support when it's needed. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this morning. Um, Sharing your story, you know, it's opened my eyes up to certain things as well and think about how I deal with things in the classroom as well. And I've just had no message in saying thank you, Warren, for coming onto the show as well. Okay, Warren, I wish you all the best with your work and the future because you have turned it all around um, and you have kind of um, made a, a career path for yourself. And the fact that you've managed to get into uh, Russell Square, Uni- Russell Group University um, after <laughs> the experiences you've had just goes to prove that you did not have problems in terms of understanding, uh, you know, understanding things when you were in the classroom, but you just had issues with relationship building and somebody should have looked out for you. Uh, and I'm so glad that your sister was there as well because mm-hmm. um, obviously she was a, a great help to you. So I wish you all the best with your future um, and do keep in touch. Thank you, Sobi. You take care. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. You too. Bye. Okay, bye. See you later. Right. Next up, we have Martin Bloomfield discussing ethics. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Colin's Big Cat. To find out more, Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. 
Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Periods should be talked about more often to remove stigma, the Council for Curriculum, Examinations and Assessment in Northern Ireland has found. A three-year pilot scheme to provide free period products in school has been set up by the Department for Education. Prior to the new department scheme, charity organisations such as the Red Box Project provided products to individual schools. According to the CCEA, many issues relating to period dignity have been exacerbated by lockdowns, particularly the issue of period poverty. More than 25% of pupils who responded to a survey said they had difficulty getting period products, and over 50% of respondents also said they were embarrassed when buying products. It is this statistic that has led to the suggestion that periods should be talked about more openly to reduce the stigma. According to a report in The Independent, the former top Department of Education civil servant received a payout of nearly £278,000 to leave his post following the August 2020 exam process. Jonathan Slater was removed as permanent secretary with only months left in his £165,000 a year role, after, according to the paper, Boris Johnson demanded fresh leadership. Now official documents have revealed he received the £270,000 payout for a loss of office. In August 2020, the DfE had come under fire for its system for working out exam grades, which initially relied on a now infamous algorithm, after exams were cancelled due to the pandemic. A lack of up-to-date textbooks is forcing teachers to source their own materials, according to reports from Africa Education Watch in Ghana. Two years after the introduction of a new curriculum, teachers are struggling to effectively implement it due to a lack of resources. Ghanaian Education Minister Dr Adwutwam admitted that the lack of textbooks was an issue, but assured Parliament that the problem was being dealt with. Africa Education Watch pointed out that those in charge of curriculum change should have waited for everything to be put in place before launching the new curriculum. In the meantime, teachers will continue to source their own materials whilst the situation is resolved. Finally, the local government website reports that school leaders are welcoming the government's confirmation of £4 billion worth of funding, but highlight that it falls well short of what is needed to make up for past cuts. The funding is due next year and includes an extra £1 billion for pupils with SEND. The funding can be used to meet a wide range of operational costs. Jeff Barton from the Askell Union stated that funding was welcome and described it as a shot in the arm, but stated that the current government has presided over cuts to education which are without precedent in post-war UK history. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. This week we're going to look at one of the simplest, freely available, yet least used browser technologies, the Reader View. 
Chrome versus Edge. Let the battle commence. On screen one, I have Microsoft Edge weighing in at the cost of zero pounds. On screen two, I have Google Chrome also weighing in at the cost of zero pounds. Round one, opening reader view. On the Edge browser, the immersive reader feature is built in and can be activated by a button on the address bar. By typing read followed by a colon in front of a URL and also you can simply press F9. Before you can open reader view in Chrome, you have to install it as an extension. It's free and not difficult. Once installed, you'll find it in extensions located to the right of the address bar. One point to Immersive Reader. Round two, features. Both come out fighting with the read aloud feature that allows the user to adjust the read speed, skip forward and back, and change the voice that is reading. They both also highlight the word being read. Chrome Reader has a volume control, which is a nice touch if not using headphones. One point, Chrome Reader. Round three, readability. A big feature for reader views is the ability to change the formatting to suit the user. Both allow easy changing of font size, font and text width on the screen, but they differ in background colour features. Here is where Immersive Reader offers quite a bit more. Chrome Reader offers 8 background slash contrast colours, 4 light and 4 dark. Immersive Reader provides 23 background options, green, pink, yellow and blue included, allowing pupils with visual needs to find a comfortable colour. One point, Immersive Reader. Round 4, Editing. Chrome Reader features a design mode. This allows you to highlight text and make changes. Quite useful if wanting to pick out key points to return to. Immersive Reader does not have this feature. One point Chrome Reader. Round five, extra features. Immersive Reader has a grammar feature allowing words to be split into syllables. You can highlight nouns, verbs, adjectives and adverbs by flicking switches. This feature is not offered on Chrome Reader. One point Immersive Reader. Immersive Reader also offers reading preferences, featuring line focus of five, three or one line, blocking out the rest of the page. There's a picture dictionary, allowing some words to change the pointer to a magic wand that reveals a picture depicting it. Also, there's a translation feature allowing partial or full translation of a page into 88 different languages at the click of a button. Chrome Reader does not offer these features, however, other free products such as Google Translate could be used. Immersive Reader takes the point because you don't need to leave the page. Final score! Winning with 4 points to 2 after a blistering final round is Microsoft Immersive Reader, but let's face it, most people don't know these things exist. If you were one of them, please do something about it. See if these features are installed in your school, and if not, request they are. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2021 Twitter feed. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Right, welcome back. If you've just joined us, we've had uh, Warren King in this morning talking about how he got into drugs and crime and what we could do to support our students to ensure they're not going down the same route or how we can prevent them from going down the same route as well. Uh, I've messaged Warren and just to let you know how much of a nice guy he is, he just said that sometimes he forgets what he's saying, um, but he's been through some really harrowing experiences. So Warren, it's absolutely fine. You did fantastically well this morning. I'm pleased to announce that we've got Martin back on the show this morning. Martin Bloomfield has been on the show before. Martin, are you there? I am indeed. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm fine. Well, I've got a bit of a cold, but, uh, but I think everyone's coming down with Yeah, I think everyone's feeling it as well, aren't they? Because yeah. um, it's been exhausting at work, and I think with the uh, with the COVID situation, it doesn't look to it doesn't seem to look to be getting better, is it? <laughs> no, sadly, it doesn't. No, I mean, I've uh, 
I've gone through that. I've been triple jabbed. I've even had COVID and recovered, and, and still I've got to be careful. So yeah, it's it's always hard. Yeah, I, I every anyone who's at home listening, if you are um, going through COVID, our thoughts and prayers are with you. And yeah. uh, please do reach out to people because um, it is a time where you know we may be going into lockdown again, and so it's really important to have people around you uh, to prevent that loneliness uh, and other issues that people go through. Okay, um, Martin, we're going to be talking about ethics today. So I'm just going to uh, go through some information because I've been thinking about this a lot. And um, I think that sometimes ethics goes amiss in everyday life. And it's easy to do because um, some people don't don't think we need to teach it. But I think we still need to teach ethics and morals um, because sometimes doing what's legal is not always ethical. And um, education is the one sector which is still, in my opinion, reliable, uh, what's good for society and moral development. And, you know, we, we kind of need to make it sustainable as well so that we're passing it on um, generation to generation. And one of the goals of education is wisdom. Um, so understanding ethics and the difference from right and wrong is important. Where do you stand on ethics and what, what are your thoughts um, about it? And also, what are ethics, Martin, in your opinion? Well, it's a fascinating question. So let's take the first part of that um, first. And you say that, you know, we think we, we need to teach ethics in, in schools. It's really interesting. Um, you can go through life without knowing or caring about gravity, believe it or not. You know, people people have done so for centuries. They've gone through life without knowing about gravity, or they might have heard a theory of gravity and not cared. You can go through life without knowing or, or caring about electromagnetism all these scientific theories you can go through life without knowing or caring about science but you ask one person to go through life without knowing or caring about what's right and they can't we, we what's right and what what's ethical is so deeply ingrained in us that it's actually far more important than than what we might think of as the hard sciences the hard sciences things like you know chemistry or physics or biology anyone can go through life without knowing about them without caring but you you, you can't find anybody who doesn't care about what you should do or what you shouldn't do and so teaching ethics is absolutely vital and what we find is most of the time when people teach ethics what they do is they teach what they think is ethical and that's possibly a mistake because ethical means different things to different people. So, for instance, if you come from a world where ethics, you come from a traditional background, for instance, and, and ethics may be, for instance, some form of objective truth. You know, it's, it's, it's always wrong to steal. It's always wrong to murder this kind of thing. You might come from a different kind of background where ethics is looked upon as that which brings the greatest benefits to society. Well, these are two different ethical perspectives. And if we just teach ethics without understanding what these different perspectives are, then we risk doing a number of different things. First of all, we risk confusing our own understanding of ethics because we might actually start teaching um, what's right from contradictory perspectives. And second, and this is really important, different cultures and different national cultures tend to tend towards this kind of ethical perspective or that kind of ethical perspective. And if we're not wary of that, if we're not mindful of that, then the danger is that what we're doing is we're teaching our own particular um, 
ethnocentric perspective. In other words, we're teaching our culture as what's right. And this can go some way towards damaging um, different cultures, especially different cultures from maybe less wealthy, less powerful nations in a pluralizing society. So you get refugees, you get immigrants coming over to whichever country we happen to live in. And we're imposing um, an ethnocentric view of what's right on them. This may be completely different from the kind of views of what's right and what's wrong that they may have come from. So we need to open up the conversation. And I think the first thing to do is acknowledge how important ethics is and then open up the conversation to different voices. And agreed because you do say that uh, ethics has to be applied to be meaningful one of the things that i i wanted to explore is obviously when we're looking at and it doesn't have to be the current government it can be any government in power governments make short-term decisions and they don't really plan for long term and they don't think about things like how do their actions impact other people as much as they used to uh, when we're thinking about ethics for ourselves, our own moral values, we need to make sure that we're thinking about how our actions impact other people and how it's going to impact on the future. And sometimes these short-term decisions, they often lead to poor consequences. And I find, uh, when I was thinking about this, Martin, I, I found that a lot of people are black and white thinkers. So they don't necessarily look at the grey areas and sometimes ethical decisions are made in a way that makes that difficult to you know it makes it difficult because they're not the right decisions uh you know according so to there, some people yeah so there are, there are two very very important points you've made there the first is is about the kind of language that governments use now governments as you say are short-term organizations that by their very nature you've got four or five years to make your point and to become popular again so that people will vote for you in another four or five years time and so on and so on and so on so the cycle of government is quite it's quite short so governments tend to appeal to things that appear ethical and appear productive but actually appeal to a very narrow margin of what might be looked upon as ethical so they appear to for instance um freedoms and choices well, freedoms and choices are great they're wonderful things but at the same time they're quite selfish uh, and they're designed to appeal to that aspect of us that that wants to get better in life that wants to get a bit more money that wants to have a an easier life that kind of thing but only certain ethical viewpoints think that that's relevant and that's valid so on the one hand government language does appeal to the the, the low-hanging fruit let's put it like that it appeals to the low-hanging fruit of ethics and so in order yeah, sorry, yeah. Yeah, so in order to, like, think about this clearly, you need to, um, you know, as educators, I think it's really important to think about our frameworks and our structure and integrity yeah. and, you know, making sure that we're living our values. And sometimes when we're in the workplace, Martin, you've got different incentives. So not all organisations have this as part of their culture. Why are... Why are principles important um, with regards to decision-making? Well, I mean, I suppose when, when you look at, for instance, a, a company culture, an organisational culture, um, there was a, a man called Edgar Schein who did a lot of work on this. And, and what Edgar Schein showed is that you can, in a simplistic way, so I'm going to simplify this quite a lot, you can effectively, effectively think of an organisational culture in three concentric circles. 
on the outside, the outer circle, is what you call the, the behaviours and the, the artefacts and the institutions. So, for instance, the, the, the kind of company that we have, the way that we dress, do we wear a suit or do we not wear a suit? Um, do we wear jeans? Do we wear high heels or not high heels? How, how do we do our hair? What kind of language do we use? Do we, you know, that kind of thing, do we shake hands? So the, 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 the behaviours and the artefacts of a society. In the, 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 sort of the second circle, you've got what they call the values. These values are ethical values often, or they're, they're, they're cultural values. And so it's very important that these values actually inform the outer circle. So the, the values of what we think is valuable inform the way we behave. They inform the, the institutions, they, they inform the way we dress, that kind of thing. But underlying that, the central circle of this is what we call unspoken assumptions, the norms of a society. What is it? What are these unspoken assumptions that inform the values, that inform the behaviours? And so, what you what we have to look at is that within any within any within any company, there are unspoken assumptions about what's right, and these unspoken assumptions give rise to the values of the company, and these values of the company give rise to the behaviours of the company. And once we understand that, then we understand that actually the behaviours are important, but they're simply the manifestation, they're the proof of the values, and the values are the proof of the norms and the assumptions. So we, what we need to do is we start, need to start looking at the norms and the assumptions. So let's Martin. give an example. If, if you don't mind, I'll just give a very quick example. Yeah. So the behaviours of a company may be that... Um, that that, that, that I might go to the boss and I might say, look, this, this person here, this person uh, violated my rights to freedom, something along those lines. Well, underlying that are the values. And the values is the, the moral values, the ethical values of, of, of rights. So we, call, we, we, we think about, you know, that what's right is that somebody else respects my rights. Well, underlying that, the norms and the unspoken assumptions are actually that we're now dealing with a rights-based ethics. It's not the only type of ethics there can be. And so what's happened within this culture is the complaint that I've made, the behaviours, if you like, is down to the norms and the assumptions that very few people examine within the company. And these norms and assumptions tend to grow and they tend to be organic. But because they're organic and because we don't examine them, we tend to find that we're not really mindful of them. And we're not really in a position to examine them. And it's that examination of the, of the ethics that we have that's very, very important. Um, Martin, can you just um, tell us what the gentleman's name again was from the research that you were just talking about? Yes, he was called Edgar Schein, S-C-H-E-I-N. Thank you. Um, now, obviously, we've got the theoretical side of it and principles come alive when you actually put them into effect. There are yeah. lots of stakeholders within education establishments making claims towards certain outcomes and it's not clear how to move forward sometimes. So, for example, there are principles that everyone agrees to but then when it comes to actually putting them into action some people don't do it so when we're talking about equity for example diversity inclusiveness even bullying as an organization sometimes it's easy for them to talk about it but when it comes to actually implementing it it's not happening 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, one of the first things is, is that the, the, the list that you gave, equity, bullying, diversity, this, this kind of thing, these come from the norms that, 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 we're, that we don't talk about. And so there are norms and unspoken assumptions underlying the fact that we think that, that equity is, is a good thing. Actually, not every culture does. And this is really important because when you have a pluralized society, if you have, a, a, if you have a, a, let's say, an educational ex, a, a environment where people are coming from very different cultures, for instance, North African cultures or, or, or East Asian cultures, and we just assume that things like equity, these are, these are, these are the things everyone should want. Well, what we're doing is we're imposing a, a, a cultural value onto people. And these people tend to be the more vulnerable people in the first place. Um, now, when we say that we don't actually that we don't actually implement them, well, one of the reasons we don't implement them is people don't understand what it is to implement them. What, it, what is it to, impl to, to implement a policy of equity? You know, very few people actually give that much thought. What we do is we talk the, we talk the talk. But unless you know which direction to go, it's impossible to walk the walk. And one of the things you've just said, which I find really fascinating, is that obviously everybody has got their own uh, views of um, they're coming from their own backgrounds and understanding what just and yeah. unjust means. And it's this idealistic way of thinking that everybody thinks the same way. And obviously people do come from backgrounds where there have been historical injustices um, and things like that. And as, a, as leaders in an organisation, you kind of have to assess all your stakeholder claims when you're, when you're thinking about making ethical decisions. And it's not easy to find out which ones to prioritise. It takes judgment, it takes practice, and you have to process and reason it as well. So how do we resolve these ethical dilemmas that we have in the work environment? It's actually really difficult because what the first thing to do is... We have to realize that different ethical perspectives may be what we might call incommensurable. That is, um, uh, let's say from one perspective, you cannot solve the problems of a different perspective. It's almost like, you know, you can't, you, you can't decide what's a legal move in cricket by applying the rules of football. So if you, if you assume that different ethical perspectives have got different rules, different norms, different values, then we have to understand, first of all, that I have one ethical perspective and that somebody else may have another. So one of the things is learning to recognize that. And that once we've done that, then we have to be able to open the conversation because then you can still communicate between these two different sort of thought, thought bubbles, as it were. So you're going to open the conversation. And the best way to open the conversation is to try to flatten the hierarchies and democratize the conversation. But that's really difficult really difficult because there are always norms that govern conversations and one of the things is you know we've got languages that govern conversations and languages are suffused with with with, with ethical perspectives they're suffused with power dynamics all sorts of things so even the language that we use to have these conversations can be quite imbalanced and that's one of the problems. But the best way to do it is just to open up the conversation and have as many people understand their own perspectives and understand other people's perspectives as possible. Let's go back for a couple of minutes. You said earlier on that people tend to be quite black and white. Well, one of the reasons people are black and white is you've got social media. And social media algorithms drive you towards those people who think the same things. So you end up in, as it were, ethical bubbles. 
people have got very different perspectives, but they're being driven towards these perspectives. And it's none of their fault. It's not their choice. That's just what the algorithms are doing. And, and when you're in a particular culture that is so certain that this is the right thing and that's the wrong thing, these kinds of black and white situations can evolve. And so the, the job is to break down those bubbles. If, if breaking down a bubble makes sense to you. Yeah, um, I'm just going to quickly explain that for our listeners, um, Martin. So with technology, the explosion of technology and the expansion of AI, which is artificial intelligence and machine learning, digital currencies, technology is outpacing the ethical constraints we have as a society. So that means that as a society, we should be looking to humanities, philosophy, ethics to inform the tech side. Otherwise, it does yeah. become problematic. And like you said, the algorithms, all they're doing is collecting data. So they're data mining and they're making underlying assumptions and biases, which if you're not conscious about yourself, um, it, you know, you can be easily manipulated by that. And so, you know, you need to understand those people who are in STEM subjects need to understand that when they are innovating um, new technologies or practices or whatever it is they're doing, they need to understand the consequences that sometimes it is unacceptable and we should not be harming or destroying others through our innovation um, and then we you need to think about the framework so what values are we supporting what are the implicit biases of the tech that we use how do we deal with the ethics of the world martin when the organization that we work for you know there's a conflict between outside and obviously inside what's happening within the organization because just look at government in comparison to what's happening in our organizations how do we resolve those conflicts yeah and and one of the, the, the one of the, the basic things we need to do is we need to factor in as you say ethics philosophy sociology into stem subjects because people believe that STEM subjects are the important ones. But as I said at the, at the top of the, of the conversation, we cannot go through life without, without a, an ethical understanding, but we can go through life without a STEM understanding. It's perfectly simple. It's perfectly possible. But the people who are programming those, those, those algorithms, the people who are programming the artificial intelligence, they get zero training generally speaking, not always, but in general, they get no training in understanding what's right and so you, you end up with, with things that, that are completely unexpected and they're not deliberate. But I don't know whether you realize, but um, facial recognition and artificial, artificial um, intelligence, facial recognition, it doesn't work quite as well on black people as it does on white people. It doesn't work quite as well on the disabled as it does on the able-bodied. It doesn't work quite as well on trans people as it does on what you might call um, heteronormative people or sort of gender normative people. And so what you what we find is that the people who are programming the artificial uh, intelligence the, the algorithms that go into that they're programming it as though they're programming for their own world but their own world is quite limited and especially because if you're like the people who tend to go into stem subjects tend to be quite, from quite a limited group of people as well and so what they're doing is they're programming their own perspectives without understanding the perspectives of others and when we do that what happens is you get something called technocentricity now technocentricity comes in two parts the first part of technocentricity is the idea that technology governs the world and technology should have an important role in governing the world and technology should be available to everybody and technology should be the enabling force 
of education or of commerce, etc., etc. The second part of technocentricity, of course, is that the technology that we use is ethnocentric. That is, it comes from particular um, ethnic perspectives. It comes from particular national and cultural points of view. And so once we realize that the technology is suffused with the values of a particular type of culture, and then we realize that technology is the, the enabling force for, for society and for commerce and for ethics, then we realize that what's happened is that we've just effectively imposed a cultural view on absolutely everybody who uses that technology, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from, and no matter what their views of the world are. And that's quite scary. Yeah. That's actually quite scary, Martin, because what's good for X is not necessarily good for everybody else. And I think that's something that we need to be careful of. And when we're looking at our own organisations as well, we need to think about you know, moral values. What are the values of the companies that we work for? What are the values of the companies and organizations that we're buying from? How do they back it up? How do they fit in with your own personal values? All of those are decisions that we have to make um, as adults. And if there's a gap between the values that you're living and the values that, uh, you, you know, you're buying into, then you need to probably reflect. And maybe that's not the place where you should be investing your time in and it's you know the reason why we're doing part of this show is to raise awareness that you know it you know your time and your attention is something that you can't get back and social media and all of these tech um, organizations are robbing you of that because it does become uh, addictive and I think um, you need to have a sense of agency over your life and the problem is that our younger generation have been brought up in this worldview uh, and opinions are influenced by that, Martin, and that affects us as teachers. Yeah, of course, yeah. And when we have, for instance, when you have, let's say, a school or an educational organisation or any culture, any company culture, what they tend to have is they'll have an ethical policy. But generally, these ethical policies are things like, you know, we don't discriminate on grounds of, of, of age, of sex, of gender, of, of sexual orientation, uh, of race and creed, etc., etc., etc. But this isn't an ethical policy. This is just a legal document. This is a document that says we are, we're abiding by the law. An ethical policy is something that allows you to be able to deal with conflicts when they arise in such a way that everybody feels that their voices have been heard. And, and if your, your ethical policy is simply recite, reciting what the law tells you to recite, that doesn't do that because it doesn't give you the, it doesn't give you the, the tools to be able to deal with conflict. Uh, and, and so one of the, the things we have to do is we have to start engaging with companies. We have to start engaging with schools and saying, okay, so let's, let's imagine that there are different ethical ways of looking at the world and let's imagine it's a conflict. How do we deal with this? And start looking at conflict resolution. Start looking at trying to kind of give absolutely all the stakeholders within a, a, a within a conflict. That is, all the people who are arguing, all the people this argument affects, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Try to give everybody some kind of voice, because if people don't have a voice, then mm. they're always going to feel crushed. Yeah. 
I, I agree with that, Martin, because we've had someone messaging saying, as a parent, that's why continual dialogue between teachers, educators, obviously, yeah. and parents are critical because we are, you know, we are at the forefront and we need, we do need to make sure that our, our younger generation is looked after and protected. Uh, and actually, there is evidence that suggests that organisations which have strong ethical constructs are more productive and successful. Uh, and, you know, it, you know, we, we are supposed to be thinking about our students' best interests and we shouldn't, whenever we are making decisions within our organisations, it should be based around the students, uh, to be quite honest. And that is, that is ethics in its own right, isn't it? It is, yeah, because I mean, as soon as uh, an organisation has any kind of policy that benefits the workers rather than the people they're serving, as soon as it benefits the, the, the backroom staff before it benefits the people who are learning, then education is becoming for us rather than for them. And, and I'm not certain that that's really the right way of going about it. But of course, in any educational environment, as soon as pluralism happens, as soon as people come from different perspectives, different points of view, and this isn't only national perspectives and national points of view, it's generational perspectives and generational points of view. As soon as that happens, then we have the potential for conflict. So here's a couple of things. Here's a couple of barriers that people tend not to think about. We tend to think about the world in terms of national barriers and political barriers, national boundaries and political boundaries. But actually, Often, the big boundaries are not national and they're not political, they're age-related and they're technology-related. So big boundaries these days are digital boundaries. You know, Amazon is, is far more important in that respect, and so is Google, than, for instance, Britain. You know, the, the, the boundaries that Britain has are, are far weaker than the boundaries that Amazon has and the boundaries that Google has. And so these boundaries that we think about when we're talking about different cultural perspectives, they're not the ones that we used to think about in the old days because things have changed really quickly. Yeah, they have. Um, and we've also had another message come in, Martin, saying that um, positive, healthy community leaders and influencers have to be um, uh, role models for youth um, because he's talking from a USA perspective but he's just saying that sometimes um, outsiders who influence our children um, are not the, are, are not good for our children so we need to be very very careful of that Martin just to finish off because we could be talking about this all day because it's one of my favorite topics um, but um, we you know there are loads of decisions that are being made in our schools not just related to tech but also for example um as a teacher if you're dealing with sen students and you want to take them out of the classroom but you also want to keep them in the classrooms to ensure they're learning um but also support the rest of the students those are little um decisions that you have to as a teacher make on a on a regular basis including behavioral issues as well and sometimes balancing the needs of all these students is really hard so you have have to think carefully about who needs the most support whose needs are most important um we need to foster a community to ensure everyone's needs met needs are met and sometimes when we're going through those decision making processes i know myself as a teacher i sometimes have limited understanding when i challenge slt because i'm just talking from my perspective but in an organization where we have to think about these ethical decisions you need to have really good clear communication 
communication between all parties who are involved, including with parents, to make sure that you're making moral judgments because we are in complex situations all the time. And it's a, it's a very good point indeed because you've brought me to another boundary that, that, that exists. So rather than a national boundary or a political boundary, rather than a digital boundary, rather than a generational boundary, there are what you might call neuro boundaries. And so let's take something like autism for, for a very simple example. Martin, we've only got a couple of minutes. It's built very differently from the non-autistic brain. And therefore, the autistic brain literally processes information differently, literally thinks differently. And if we communicate with, with autistic people in the way that we think we should communicate with non-autistic people, then we're leaving them out of the conversation. We're not including them in a way that really matters to people. Yes, and I agree with that because um, we need to make sure that we're communicating with everybody. Martin, I'm going to stop you there for now because we've run out of time. Um, I might do another show on this at another time, but we're, you know, it would be interesting to investigate, for example, teacher-led research and whether that's ethical uh, and thinking about that and also thinking about British values. Um, so these are topics that I might come on to another show at another time and go through those things as well um one thing that i found whilst i was doing my research um was that i liked this statement that somebody wrote uh, in one of the research uh, articles that i was reading and they said we need to spend a lot of time listening to what other people say about their values rather than making assumptions the more we're able to see the common ground the better um, at chance we will be able to build a strong society and a strong world and I think that's nicely ended the show because I think it summarizes everything that you were saying at the beginning doesn't it Martin? Absolutely absolutely and that, that if we just assume that our own ethical perspective is the only ethical perspective then what we're doing is we're building barriers that needn't exist between ourselves and different groups Great. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Martin. We might try another session um, to discuss evidence-based research uh, yeah, at another it, time. I've never quite that far yet, but it'd be absolutely wonderful. And also, <laughs> very, very quickly, one of your, one of your, um, your respondents mentioned about um, um, role models and um, who are the right, right role models and the, the wrong role models. There's an awful lot to be said in this area about as it were, um, leaders and moral leaders and ethical leaders and, and how different models of ethical leadership uh, are really important. You have collective leadership, you have the warrior king, you have the role models, all of these different things. And how do we how do we instill the values of the best kind of ethical leadership into an organisation? Brilliant. That sounds great, Martin. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. It's been great fun. Great. Thank you. Well, it's been a jam-packed show and we could have gone on for ages, but we have run out of time. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you for the messages you've been sending in as well. I'm glad that you're enjoying the show and I agree. Blessings, everyone. Happy holidays. Um, uh, we have Graham and Khalil and Kaylee on later today. Do keep listening to TTR Radio because there's lots of shows uh, coming on after me and we do have a schedule. So do go onto our website and check out our schedule. So we've got some really good hosts coming on. I'm now going to be off air and I'm not going to be coming back on until the 16th of Jan. But thank you very much for tuning in today and I'll see you when I return. Take care. 
You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.